Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Brothers Karamazov. Today we have a fairly small section to cover, and a fairly straightforward one at that. This really is just kind of plot development, but with Mitya finally meeting up with Grushenka, catching her in the village of Makroya, going on his giant spree, putting the poles in their places, and moving on to bigger and better things, with a cliffhanger ending that teases that Mitya is about to get into some very serious trouble. Um, but the fact that it's short and straightforward just gives us all the more sort of room to work with this particular chapter. And as much as this is, again, straightforward, there's no big flights of intellectual digression, there's no philosophy on display, no, you know, big character beats besides, you know, what is sort of inevitable as far as Mitya's relationship with Grushenka is concerned, I do want to sort of take this apart, piece by piece, and, and look at exactly what is going on here, the, where Dostoevsky succeeds and where Dostoevsky kind of misses the mark, and just sort of tackle what's going on in these few chapters. Um, so let's start with Mitya. Um, obviously, he's sort of the central character here, and here Dostoevsky really shines in sort of depicting who Mitya is at this moment in all of his actions towards the other characters. Um, we see that he is obviously caught up in all of the things that are going on. Like, we left him after his whole weird day talking to Kuzma Kuzmich, talking to the... Uh, Forrester Leah Gavi, or trying to when he wasn't drunk, only to find out that he was drunk again, um, talking to Madame Koklikov, like, he's very much been kind of run around by the nose, he's very much at his last sort of nerve. We finally do see this big culminating event where he may or may not have killed his father, where he definitely does, in fact, beat Grigory over the head, and then he's off. And we're given multiple hints, especially in the first couple of chapters here, that his intention is to kill himself. Um, that he is, in fact, you know, he has, in fact, retaken his pistols after pawning them specifically with the intention of shooting himself. And there are several times during the evening that he considers just doing it right now, just not even wasting time. Um, his intention, at least in, in Chapter 6, Here I Come, is to just observe, to see Grushenka for the last time, recognize that, you know, her relationship with this random Polish officer is apparently inevitable for foreordained and therefore not to be trifled or, or inter interfered with, and yet Mitya still feels compelled to see her, to, to have this last sort of confrontation with her. She's meant so much to him for so long, um, and there is very much the sense that he is kind of holding on to life in some sense, um, as confused and, and as messed up as he seems to be by this. Um, but we should also very much notice, like, it's very clear, especially in these chapters, that Mitya is very much a, a romantic hero, um, as Dostoevsky would have understood it. Like, he's not a classic hero in the sense of, like, some Schillerian, you know, ubermensch who is greater than anyone gives a credit, gives him credit for, and yet tragically, because of not being recognized, you know, dies horribly or something. He's not a hero in the sense of, like, Goethe's Faust, who is constantly striving for nothing. Um, he's a romantic hero in so far as he is driven by these internal demons, that he has these passions that, like Werther or like Faust, um, he is, you know, sort of forced by his own constitution to behave in this way. But this is way after Romanticism was especially popular. Dostoevsky was an ardent defender of the tradition of Romanticism, and you can see a lot of Romantic elements in his novels, especially here with Mitya. Um, but Mitya is in context. It's not, like, Dostoevsky is not raising Mitya up to be admired without qualification or sort of other characters to sort of temper that. Remember, Alyosha is our hero here. Alyosha is the one who sort of best mixes the romantic character with the religious character with the intellectual character. Um, by contrast, each of the other characters that were that are in Alyosha's family, Mitya and Ivan especially, sort of represent the two poles of this. Mitya is all heart, all romance, all emotion, where Ivan is all intellect, all liberalism, all very rational and very philosophical. Um, and on the one hand, that makes Mitya difficult to talk about. Uh, like, absolutely, academics, like we've talked about in the lectures before, they love talking about Ivan. They love seeing Fyodor Dostoevsky himself in Ivan. They love taking apart Ivan's ideas and sort of positing that they are, in fact, what Dostoevsky believes, whether or not that's true. 
they love dissecting him. And in many ways, I suspect that's because academics actually have a lot in common with Ivan. Um, because they see in him what is, you know, what they recognize and appreciate and admire about themselves. Um, but the other side of it, of course, is that Ivan's way more fun to talk about. Um, you can absolutely go into great detail talking about the allegorical significance of the Grand Inquisitor or, you know, analyzing the atheism that Ivan uh, practices and represents in comparison with all of the sort of discussion um, going on in 19th century Russia at this time, especially what Dostoevsky was talking about and sort of engaged in. It's very easy to sort of engage in that sort of intellectual discussion. But with Mitya, he's just passionate. There's no deeper level to him. Like, yes, you can, in fact, try and get at the psychological underpinnings. You could try and, like, do some Freudian analysis on him and sort of try and come to conclusions. But I suspect the reason why academics are much more interested in Ivan than Mitya is because, again, Ivan is easier to talk about in many ways. Um, and I've sort of commented on this before, pointed to it before. Like, one of the things that I've noticed as a college professor is... It's a lot more edifying as a professor to engage with a text that allows you to sort of pull magic tricks in front of your students, where you get to, you know, reveal the underlying symbolism or talk about the, the things that are, you know, hidden by the text, the, the multiple layers of meaning that could be in here, um, to talk about its historical context or to point to the historical events that Dostoevsky is pointing to, all that sort of thing. Um, and as a consequence, a lot of books that are very much hailed in the academic community, things like James Joyce's Ulysses or The Great Gatsby or... Um, trying to think. There are many, many others who could definitely fall into this category, and indeed, basically, the entire literary canon is built around them. Um, thinkers like the modernists, uh, thinkers like the American romantics, like, so many of these writers are celebrated specifically because there are depths to explore. There are layers to sort of uncover. Mitya doesn't have layers. And as a consequence, you know, you can only say so much about him. Yes, he is a romantic hero. Yes, he is passionate. Yes, he is confused. Yes, he is caught up in the moment. Um, and then you're done. It's like, okay, moving on. Where's the next Ivan chapter? Um, academics, in general, have a really difficult time talking about literature that is relatively straightforward, that is relatively not laden with symbols or, you know, covered in, in allegory. Um, you'll see a lot of academics absolutely taking apart Faulkner, not so many who are interested in taking apart Hemingway, except insofar as Hemingway's whole terse and straightforward style is a mask for talking about male insecurity or toxic masculinity or whatever we're talking about today. Generally, a really well-executed good work of literature that doesn't have layers doesn't end up being celebrated in the academic world the way that so many others do. And this is one of the things that I kind of want to point to here. Mitya is expertly rendered here. Dostoevsky has a very clear notion of the psychology involved in this character. And for a character whose behavior is just this totally inconsistent, like at one moment he is completely confused and doesn't know what's going on, he goes back and forth about whether he actually wants to kill himself, he is, you know, heroic in one scene and then depraved in the next, and nobody questions this. Nobody at any point calls foul on this. On the one hand, I am going to call foul on some of the other things going on in this chapter. I think Grushenka is a little bit simplistic and kind of purely serving the purposes of Mitya. I think the Poles, as I mentioned in the last lecture, are a bit of a stereotype and a bit like prejudicially presented here, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, I think the the innkeeper, who is given a whole bunch of sort of introduction, uh, the like, he, we're, we're very much sort of primed to expect that he's going to try and cheat Mitya, and all of a sudden, he's not, and he's actually, like, upholding Mitya. I think all of these sort of leave us with questions that are, are sort of inappropriately developed in this chapter. But Mitya, Mitya is the sole focus. Mitya is the character who we came riding into this whole party on, uh, or party with, and Dostoevsky is clearly building this chapter around Mitya's development, giving him an opportunity to shine here. Um, and all of the things that Mitya does ring true. 
Like, at least as far as I'm concerned, I have no follow-up questions about Mitya. Um, I do not suspect Dostoevsky of either inappropriately raising him up or inappropriately tearing him down. Mitya seems to me to be very human. Because I've known people like this. Heck, I'm like this on multiple occasions. As much as I sort of present myself in, in my online persona as being this academic, very intelligent, studied, I suspect the very reason why I am here doing lectures for no pay on the internet is because I'm more passionate than I am intelligent. I do much less I-dotting and T-crossing than the average academic in the PhD program. I have no patience for doing grants, and I have no patience for, you know, trying to make sure that every single thing that I utter is absolutely true. But in the consequence, my passion is what carries people away. My students have always remarked that I'm, like, very passionate about what I believe in. Um, I'm very excited to, or exciting to listen to and excited about the things that I'm talking about. I make really boring subjects interesting because I get excited about them. Um, and that's because I am a little of both. I have a little Mitya, I have a little Ivan. And I recognize the, the sort of allure of both. Notice... Everybody responds to Mitya fairly warmly in this chapter. Like, even the Poles, as much as they are out to cheat him, and as much as they are very suspicious of him, and they, as much as they sort of respond coldly to him, he immediately ingratiates himself into their party, and they do not kick him out, despite their, their potential threats, despite the threat that he poses to the relationship with Grushenka. They play cards with him, mostly in order to cheat him, admittedly, but he seems to be okay with this. Like Alyosha, who we're told everybody sort of immediately, like, attaches themselves to him, immediately admires him, immediately loves him, Mitya is admirable, friendly. People gravitate towards people like this. Um, they find them warm and, and caring. And, you know, at my best moments, I've felt that sort of response as well. Um, it's a really tricky thing to sort of pin down, though, because it isn't, again, rational. It's not something that is clear-cut or straightforward. It is not something that you can argue about or pin down. Like, maybe in some psychological treatise, you can see how these passionate characters ultimately, you know, do appeal to other people. But to talk about it in that sort of psychological language, to pin it down rationally and logically to, you know, one set of characteristics or perhaps some evolutionary... Uh, some evolutionary like, predilection on the part of human development, you know, that sort of takes away the magic. Some people are just like this. Some people just are exciting to be around, are, you know, interesting and excited about life, and you just kind of go with it. Like, no, they're not necessarily the best people to be around. They're probably terrible in effects, but people gravitate towards them. Um, I remember in college, there were a lot of people who were just charismatic in this way, who didn't really have their life figured out. And in fact, that was kind of the allure, watching this train wreck in slow motion sort of work their way across campus. It was something that we were all excited to watch. We were protective of the people like this. We wanted them to succeed because they were just so full of life in some ways. And that's what's going on with Mitya here. He is, as much as he is threatening to kill himself, incredibly full of life. He is very much in the moment, in a way that Ivan never is. Um, everything that happens to him is simultaneously something that he can roll with, like, that he immediately can respond to and not get upset about and not get, you know, like, particularly petty or, or begrudging about, but at the same time, he gets immediately worked up into a, a whole passion, like, immediately. He goes with whatever crazy idea pops up into his head at the minute that it shows up. Um, he doesn't think about the consequences of his actions, and in many ways he doesn't care about the consequences of his actions. Um, like, note that when he, in fact, starts the card game with the polls, he starts by saying, I want to lose money to you. Um, we don't know where he's come up with this money. Obviously, again, the, the clear sort of theory, especially because he does promise the, the poll 3,000 rubles in their sort of clandestine discussion about breaking up Grushenka and the Polish officer, um, he suggests that he's got 3,000, which 
suggest to us that he did in fact murder his father and take the money that his father was keeping from Grushenka. Um, but we also, remember, don't know for sure. All we got was that line of dots across the page. We, we don't know whether he or not he killed his own father. We believe that it's possible that he did. Perhaps that informs his guilt. Perhaps that's why he wants to kill himself. But you'll notice, too, that when he does, in fact, feel guilty, when he does, in fact, start to feel bad, when he realizes he's made a horrible mistake because Grushenka is willing to get back together with him, it's not his father he's thinking about. It's Grigory. It's his adoptive father. It's the servant who we did, in fact, see him beat almost to an inch of his life, who he did, in fact, seriously injure. That's where he feels guilt. So either Mitya didn't kill his father and therefore has no idea why people are accusing him of this at the very end of the chapter, or alternatively, he feels zero guilt over this, which, on the one hand, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense given Mitya's character. He's otherwise so forthright and so, so honest about his emotions but also, we've seen Mitya make huge sort of omissions in his observations and his kindness. Like, remember when he originally finds out that Grushenka has gone off with the officer, he's bewildered. He's like, who? Yes, he had read the letter, but he never considered him a threat. And to some degree, he, the, this Polish officer, even when Mitya is in the same room with him, is just a non-entity. Like, Dostoevsky treats him as a non-entity. He doesn't even get a name! in this book. No wonder it's so hard to keep track of whatever is going on with Grushenka. Like, the the person who is her fiancé doesn't ever actually get a name. He is just the Polish officer. Like, he, even his friend, the guy who is his bodyguard, as Mitya taunts him, is Pan Wrublenski. Um, he, like, his friend gets a name, but he doesn't get a name. Again, we'll get there a little bit later. But what I want to emphasize is that Mitya doesn't care. Like, Mitya has given up. Mitya is just here to experience this moment and no more, in part because he doesn't expect to live to see tomorrow. Um, and that's, again, very romantic. Very sort of in that moment. Very caught up in the passions. It's very easy to sort of imagine Werther or one of the Pushkinian soldier heroes sort of taking this same role. It's easy to see, you know, Pechorin from Hero, A Hero of Our Time taking this role, as much as Pechorin is himself also, like Mitya, a deconstruction of this romantic archetype. Mitya is just alive. He is in this moment. He is reacting instead of being an active planner or, or schemer in this sense. And he's taken advantage of. And notice when they do, in fact, take advantage of him, when the Poles, in fact, do, like, cheat him of a bunch of money, he doesn't care. Like, it, it's it's nothing to him. It's no big deal. What matters to Mitya is not the fact that he was cheated. The money never mattered to him at all. But the fact that this is one of the contributing factors that changes Grushenka's opinion. This is what sort of ultimately drives Grushenka over the edge and into Mitya's arms. Um, but notice, too, just even some of the tiny details here. Uh, the way that Mitya interacts with the Poles, the, the sort of way that Mitya talks to them and even flatters them in some case, in uh, some cases. Like, he's heroic in this set of scenes. Like, actually legitimately heroic. As much as Mitya is, again, a deconstruction of this romantic archetype, unlike most re uh, most deconstructions that are in sort of the, the like, 19th century canon of people starting to take pot shots at romantic assumptions, this isn't a mean deconstruction. Mitya is presented as a true human being, complete with flaws and uh, moments of triumph. Um, he is presented especially in these chapters as truly good, well-meaning at the very least, um, especially compared to some of the other characters here. Like, Maximov is just presented as ridiculous. He's telling tall tales about his time as a soldier and having married various Polish peasant women, which, you know, kind of rubbed the, the Polish gentleman the, the wrong way. Um, he's, like, very much a buffoon. He asks Mitya to borrow money so he can participate in the card game. Like, he is very much just here for comic relief, just as he was at the beginning of the novel when Ivan kicks him out of the carriage, which, again, is referred to explicitly here. Um, but take a look at the interaction between Mitya and the two Poles as they start drinking and, and as they start playing Baccarat. This is on page 424 um, in the Piotr Balakonsky translation. 
translation. Um, the second paragraph down, Mitya says, Pan, let us drink, Panya, and the other Pan, too, let us drink, Panavya. In a second, he moved three glasses together and poured champagne. Notice, this is a consistent thing, that the two Poles are referred to as Pan. This is apparently the Polish word for gentleman, and sort of a form of address, kind of sir, so to speak. Um, and Mitya immediately adopts this form of saying. Like, notice, some of the other characters, they get grumpy. Like, Grushenka at one point gets very mad at her fiancé because he won't speak Russian. He's like, no, speak Russian, damn it. Like, I don't want you to speak to me in that language. Um, you are in Russia, you will speak Russian, which, again, is complicated. But Mitya doesn't do this. Mitya sort of ingratiates himself with the Poles by approaching them on their level, by speaking to them at their level. We kind of get the sense that the Russians here are sort of perceiving themselves above the Poles, that much as we talked about last time, where Dostoevsky saw Russia as being the leader of the Slavic nations and, and sort of like naturally being their leader, that again, as we said, if, uh, as we saw in the writer's diary, the Slavic nations had nothing to offer Russia at this point, which I got grumpy about. Um, Dostoevsky does seem to continue that idea here. The Poles are represented as inferiors, and therefore Mitya, by sort of stepping down to their level, is, if anything, presented as magnanimous, as being generous, as condescending in the good way. Condescending meaning he is willing to like put away his honors, put away his, his titles, put away the, the honor that he is owed. In, in return for just the camaraderie, being able to hang out with these people. Um, and notice that when he pours these three glasses, when he incorporates them all together, his toast is to Poland. To Poland, Panavia. I drink to your Poland, to the Polish land, Mitya exclaimed. And this is significant. Just a few years back, as far as the, the setting of this novel goes, Poland had, in fact, tried to fight for their independence at roughly the same time that everybody in Europe was fighting for their independence. Um, Poland was sort of, like, trying to separate themselves from the various nations that were overpowering them at this point, specifically Russia. Um, so notice that Mitya specifically, like, toasts to Poland, to their independence, to their status as an independent nation. Um, he supports them on some level, which is especially weird because Mitya was an officer in the Russian army. This is not what you would have expected from Mitya. Mitya would be expected, and notice that many of the other Russians kind of like aren't sure how to respond to this. They definitely do not get in on this toast. Um, this would have been sort of anti-patriotic, almost traitorous. If Mitya had been in his regiment, chances are he would have been insulted over this sort of of, like, ingratiation. And the Poles themselves, they go along with this. Um, I'm not going to try and read the Polish, because as much as I have a Polish last name, I have never learned Polish, so we're not going to go there. Um, that is very nice, Panya. Let us drink, the pan on the sofa said gravely and benevolently, taking his glass. And the other pan, what's his name? Hey, Excellency, take a glass, Mitya fussed. Pan Vrublenski, the pan on the sofa prompted. Pan Vrublenski came swinging up to the table and, standing, accepted his glass. To Poland, Panovia! Hurrah! Mitya shouted, raising his glass, and all three men drank. Mitya seized the bottle and immediately poured three more glasses. So, notice, Mitya goes through all the motions here. He celebrates with them. He celebrates their nation, he celebrates their heritage, they, he celebrates their independence. He honestly and truly, for all intents and purposes, there's not an in inkling of guile or, like, irony or superiority. Nothing of that. Mitya is just here to have fun. He is here to celebrate Grushenka's new life with this Polish officer, much as it pains him, much as we have literally seen him threaten another person's life with jealousy over this woman. He is so carried away by his own sort of self-perceived benevolence that he just rides with it, celebrates these people, goes out of his way to do this. But the response is way less generous. Notice that Mitya's next act is to seize the bottle and immediately pour three more glasses. Now to Russia, Panavia, and let us be brothers. Pour some for us, said Grushenka. I'll drink to Russia, too. So will I, said Kalganov. I wouldn't mind either, sirs, to our dear Russia. Our old granny, Maximov joined in giggling. 
Notice again, Rushenka, Kalganov, and Maximov did not come in for the Polish toast. They would consider that inappropriate because, again, they, as far as they're concerned, Poland is a part of Russia, and their independence is something fictional, something that is sort of treasonous to support as Russian citizens. They do not go so far as Mitya does in his magnanimity. But when they are going to drink to Russia, yeah, now they're in. Absolutely, Grushenka, Kalganov, and Maximov will drink to Russia, my dear Granny, Maximov adds. Again, kind of being silly and, and ridiculous, um, but also still affectionate in some way. Everyone, everyone, cried Mitya. Innkeeper, more bottles. The three remaining bottles that Mitya had brought were produced. Mitya poured. To Russia! Hurrah! He proclaimed again. Everyone drank except the pans, and Grushenka finished her glass at one gulp. The Panovia did not even touch theirs. What about you, Penalvia? Mitya exclaimed. Is that how you are? Pan Vruvlensky took his glass, raised it, and pronounced in a booming voice, To Russia within her borders before 1772. Now that's better, shouted the other Pan, and they both drained their glasses. Notice, Mitya has gone out of his way to be magnanimous to these people, to the Poles here. And the Poles respond with frigidity. No, we are not going to drink to Russia. We are going to drink to Russia within the borders defined for Russia by other nations in a treaty that existed some 90 years ago. We are specifically going to limit Russia to a very specific set of borders. This would have been directly offensive to the people there, and they know that it's directly offensive to Grushenka, to Kalganov, to Maximov, to Mitya. And Mitya even remarks on this. Um, you're both fools, Panavia suddenly escaped from Mitya. And then both pans shouted threateningly, Panya, turning on Mitya like fighting cocks. We get this moment of incredible tension as a consequence. And I'm particularly interested in this passage because I think that it's so telling about all of the characters involved and Dostoevsky's eye for what's going on here. On the one hand, Mitya is being presented as heroic. He is both magnanimous enough to the Poles to, to complement their heritage, to complement their country, to sort of bring himself down to this level. But on the other hand, he also doesn't get terribly upset when they insult him directly to his face. Admittedly, the, there, we have this sort of like back and forth. Grushenka is the one that ultimately breaks it up. Um, but... The only description of what we get about Mitya here, besides his, his remark here that you are both fools, which you'll notice Dostoevsky emphasizes, escaped from Mitya. It is something that he didn't do intentionally. He's not trying to rile the Poles up. He is legitimately offended. He's trying to be conciliatory. He's trying to be nice. He's trying to be generous. They have insulted him to his face, and his first reaction is defensiveness, something that is appropriate. It's ultimately Grushenka who brings the whole party down, who says, silence, no quarreling, there are to be no quarrels. And notice, she herself, in her sort of drunken stupor here, which Mitya himself remarks upon and is worried about, Mitya got terribly frightened, he says. Um, Grushenka is kind of trying to protect Mitya in this situation. She is very much out of place here, and we'll see exactly what her deal is in a moment. Um, but notice how Mitya responds even to this. Panovia, forgive me, it was my fault. I'll stop. Vrublensky, Pan Vrublensky, I'll stop. Notice Mitya apologizes. I am the cause of everything, he says a little bit farther. Why are we all sitting here? What should we do? For some fun, for some more fun. Notice Mitya immediately regrets this outburst, this um, this, you're both fools, Panavia. Like, he's trying to be nice, he's trying to be generous, he's trying to be conciliatory, he's trying to be magnanimous, and just for a moment it falls apart. Dostoevsky captures this. Dostoevsky sees where Mitya is at at this particular moment. How badly he wants for everyone to enjoy themselves, how badly he wants them all to just put away their troubles, put away their grievances, have fun, have a one last opportunity to spend time with Grushenka and then be done with it, kill oneself in the morning. But on the other hand, notice that Dostoevsky is also very carefully sort of framing this discussion and noting the, that the issues of honor are still present here. 
Like we talked about this several chapters ago, back when Alyosha was talking to, to Snegirov, and we had this whole discussion of, you know, how pride keeps getting in the way of generosity and, and goodness. Notice that Mitya has put away his pride here, for the most part. Um, he is successfully sort of humbling himself, forgiving the, the Poles immediately for, for you know, getting upset, for, for offending him, for insulting him. Um, but notice, too, that Dostoevsky captures the sort of insecurity and discomfort of the Poles themselves in this section as well. How quick they are to get sort of offended and, and to sort of throw off Mitya's generosity. As much as this entire scene is structured to sort of make Mitya into a hero, top to bottom it's the Poles who keep sort of doing dirty tricks to Mitya, and Mitya is sort of the victim of these things, but also the hero who ultimately picks up Pan Vrublensky and chucks him into the next room. Um, Mitya is presented as admirable. This is why Grushenka falls in love with him again. Like, we get that whole discussion earlier when we were talking about the onion, where Grushenka said that she fell in love with Mitya for just one hour. Um, and that was all. Like, the last time that Mitya came to Makroya, to, did the whole spree thing, celebrated with all the peasants and the gypsies and the Jews and, and everybody who, you know, wanted anything, he gave the, that to them. Grushenka admired him for his magnanimity in this moment. And Grushenka struggles here. Because if Mitya is the hero, the Poles are the villains. And there's nothing necessarily villainous about them. Like, notice their reactions to what Mitya is doing are perfectly reasonable. Here comes this random Russian soldier dude who is suddenly complimenting Poland and, and you know, praising them for their desire for independence. And yeah, they're suspicious. They see this as condescension, not in the good way, as Dostoevsky wants us to see for Mitya, but in the bad way. That Mitya is going out of his way to insult them with all of this kind of flattery. That Mitya knows in some way that he is better than these Poles, and as a consequence, he is lowering himself out of not magnanimity, but condescension. Out of, you know, demonstrating by his authority that he can come down, that they do have to dance to his tune. So, yes, he does, in fact, flatter and compliment Poland, but it is immediately followed up with the natural follow-up, i.e., let's also drink to Russia, and the obligation that the Poles are under to now drink to Russia as he drank to Poland, they recognize the trick, the lie here. They see this as, ah, you set us up for this moment. Now you are forcing us to dishonor ourselves. And so Pan Vrublensky, again, sort of extricates themselves by saying, okay, we'll drink to Russia, but only Russia as she was supposed to be in 1772. The Poles, too, behave reasonably. And they know that they're offending him, but they are also themselves offended. Like, the entire situation, as far as the Poles are concerned, is very trying. Here comes this guy who is obviously interested in Grushenka, following Grushenka as she has been betrothed to her fiancé and when the fiancé carried her off. This is unseemly, to say the least. This is not the way that anyone is supposed to behave. In some sense, from a sort of male entitlement perspective, the, the pan here, the Polish officer, won Grushenka. And the best thing for Mitya to do is to accept defeat with that magnanimity, to just quietly let this happen. Instead, Mitya follows Grushenka, and naturally the Polish officer assumes that it is because he wants to get her back, something that is made all the more clear when Mitya in fact tries to bribe them in order to take Grushenka away. All of this smacks of bad news to the Poles, and that's why they behave the way that they do. They try and take advantage of Mitya by cheating at cards, something which is itself naturally dishonorable and sketchy and bad news, and they totally get the thrashing they deserve as a consequence. But as a consequence, we're kind of torn on how the Poles are supposed to be understood here. I think Dostoevsky has a very clear understanding of what, they are be what their behavior is supposed to look like, how they do, in fact, behave. It is realistic. It follows the rules. But 
Dostoevsky, where Mitya is passionate and fully realized and doesn't necessarily make sense and contradicts himself and goes out of his way to be generous, magnanimous in this situation, where Mitya is heroic because he does give up his pride often in these chapters, the Poles are not. The Poles are just proud. And notice, even Grushenka can't stand this Polish officer anymore. Like, Grushenka is perhaps the most interesting one to watch throughout these chapters, because she clearly is in a really awkward situation. It is true that this fiancé of hers has a claim on her, and it is also true that she loved him, that she expected that this day would come, that she in fact looked forward to this day, apprehensive though she may have been. But as she says, this is not the officer she originally engaged herself to. This officer is serious and very much caught up in his own pride and very much interested in Grushenka only as a duty or an obligation or a trophy to be sort of carried off. There's something very unpleasant about Grushenka's position with respect to this officer. So when Mintya comes, as much as this is just another awkwardness, as much as literally this very same day we've heard Grushenka say that she's scared of Mintya, that she was terrified that he was going to burst into her house after having learned that she was not actually at Samsonov's, you know, doing all of the accounting, as much as she is terrified of Dmitri, here she welcomes him. Here she's glad to see him. Here she's protective of him. She admittedly wants to avoid a scandal, and you can see her sort of like trying to, to make peace with them. But increasingly, as the chapter goes on, you'll see Grushenka gets more and more impatient with her fiancé, with the Polish officer, and more and more generous with Mitya. Because Mitya is honest. Mitya is straightforward. Mitya is passionate. Where the Polish officer doesn't give a damn about Grushenka, Mitya truly is here for her, admiring her, not as some sort of possession. And in fact, Grushenka gets really upset when they start talking about, or when it is revealed by Mitya that the Polish officer was about to sell her to him, and it was just a matter of dickering over the price and exactly how they would be paid. Grushenka gets really upset with this. On the one hand, you would think, hey, Grushenka, you know, Mitya is also trying to bargain for your affection, trying to buy your affection. But Grushenka knows that this was just a trap on Mitya's part, that Mitya is specifically baiting these Poles to see how they would respond. He would, in fact, take Grushenka if that were the case, but also, knowing Mitya, he wouldn't consider her obligated to him. He would have freed her for the money that he paid, not tried to, like, insist on his right over her, having paid for her freedom. So Grushenka gets upset not with Mitya, but with the Polish officer, who was willing to sell his love at a price because, really, he doesn't feel anything for her. There is no affection there. Much as Grushenka is a very complex character throughout this novel, and we've only really scratched the surface of what her deal is, because, again, we see her in such a strange circumstance when we first meet her with Katerina Ivanovna. We get all this description of her being sugary and sort of plotting and, and spider-like in, in her way of sort of getting one over on Katerina Ivanovna. Um, and then later when Alyosha meets her, it's a completely different character that we're dealing with and a complex relation to both Samsonov and to the, the Polish officer. We're told that she's disreputable, but at the same time she seems to be loyal to these particular people. And then she goes through this whole, you know, radical transformation upon talking to Alyosha when Alyosha forgives her. Um, Grushenka is a really hard one to pin down throughout this novel, perhaps because Dostoevsky didn't really understand this character, perhaps because Dostoevsky felt apprehensive writing about women. In general, Dostoevsky's depictions of women are necessarily as good as his depictions of men. Um, like, there are some exceptions. Grushenka is certainly not the first woman of disreputable character that he's written about, um, but by con contrast, the woman in The Idiot is actually considerably better realized, I suspect. Grushenka, we don't get that much time with her, and it is kind of hand-waving at a type instead of a person. But Grushenka, what we do know about her is that she hungers for affection real affection. She is a woman of great disrepute. She has taken advantage of a lot of people. She has effectively cheated a lot of people, as Dostoevsky has told us. Um, but at the end of the day, despite her 
disrepute, despite being a woman of loose morals, she is a girl in a really bad situation, making the best of it, and in hoping that someone, somewhere, will turn her prospects around. And as much as Mitya is not that person, as much as Mitya is also a giant freaking mess who can't manage to hang on to money at all and who can't, like, stay consistently, like, emotionally stable for a second, she recognizes that they are kind of appropriate for each other. She doesn't want to be just some wife chucked up in a house somewhere while the Polish officer goes on his various adventures. She doesn't want to be some status symbol. She wants to be loved. She wants to be treated like a human being. And that's something that is very much not possible for her. And yet Mitya does it. So notice, when in fact Mitya and Grushenka talk about this, when they mention that you know their situation is so strained, Grushenka emphasizes that it's not going to be peaceful and quiet once they get together. And in fact, this is how it's going to work for them. Grushenka is going to pay off Katerina Ivanovna. Uh, the debt for that Dmitri has incurred with her will be totally wiped away. And yes, it'll be dishonorable. And yes, she doesn't care about it. Because what they're going to do is they're going to go to some distant village and they're going to spend all their money on a spree just like this one. And then they're going to work really hard to make it back up like peasants because that's the way that's going to work for them. That's who they are. On some level, as much as Grushenka has been wanting all of these various things, has been very conflicted about what it is that she's searching for, you know, she went away with the Polish officer because this was a sort of attempt at respectability, she's decided here. She doesn't want respectability. She wants honesty. And say what you will about Mitya and his dissolute habits and his, you know, quickly changing opinion, he is honest to a fault. And he legitimately cares about her. Fyodor can't promise her that. Neither can the Polish officer. So at the end of the day, Grushenka apologizes to Mitya. I'm sorry that I, you know, strung your father along, turned this into a race. Like, it was flattering to her. It made her feel powerful. But it ultimately didn't get her what she actually wanted. Namely, a real human relationship. Now, here, with Mitya, she sees that it's possible to have that. Yeah, it's going to be a mess. Of course it's going to be a mess. Have you met Mitya? Have you met Grushenka? Everything they do is a mess. And that's okay. Because they'll just live their messy lives together. Let their lives be a mess. It is what is most natural to them. She will make money through her scheming and her conniving and her cheating, and Mitya will make money through his incredibly hard work and his determination to keep a roof over their head, and then they'll fritter it away because they don't care, because it never meant anything to them, because they don't have any aspirations towards respectability and profit and, and wealth. Oh, they'll fight like cats and dogs. They'll absolutely, you know, forget this and, and you know, have these delusions of grandeur. This will absolutely be the cycle of their lives, and they accept it. This is what it's going to look like. And this is why Grushenka loves him. Because it's not consistent. Because paired with this man who cannot keep his life together is a man who, when he does in fact have some money, suddenly becomes generous and kind and honest and magnanimous. That's what she loves. That's what she cares about. Mitya is guileless. It's what she admired about Alyosha as well, when Alyosha in fact came to her. But where Alyosha is removed, too holy for him for her to sort of touch, Mitya is just as broken as she is. And that's what works. That's how this fits together. So the Polish officers get kicked off stage. They get thrown into their room and they lock themselves in and they give up Grushenka for lost and they kind of apparently just nurse their wounds. They really are the villains here. And I still feel like this is a bit uncomfortable, to be honest. Like, as much as I talked about it at great length last time, I just feel obligated to bring it up here again. Like, yes, Dostoevsky is fair to them in many ways. Psychologically speaking, they are presented realistically, I believe, that these people would behave in this way. But it remains a little bit unfair. Why couldn't they have the depth that Mitya does? Why can't they, you know, drop the proud act for even a moment? Why do they just come off as defensive? Why do they just behave as this sort of, you know, insulted minority? It is very much 
presented here, just because of the very situation that we find ourselves in, that Mitya, as this characteristically Russian soul in his generosity and magnanimity, is ultimately further developed, despite his dissolution, than the Poles who are not willing to be honest, who cling to their pride because they are insecure, because they are, you know, particularly defensive about their otherwise inferior culture. That's how they're presented, and I think that kind of sucks. I think Dostoevsky could have done better. Um, and on some level, this is hardly fair to criticize Dostoevsky about. Like, again, these characters only show up for literally two chapters in this entire 775-page book. Um, he doesn't have time to develop them into the sort of rich, nuanced characters that we have come to expect. But, I mean... Compare what we're seeing with Kalganov and Maximov in this scene. Maximov, as much as he is a buffoon, is lovable. Kalganov, as much as he is occasionally like biting and sarcastic and, and, and sort of pointed in his remarks, is also surprisingly well-developed and sort of like admirable and, and relatable. But the Poles, they're just villains. They're not presented to us as, as relatable. We understand them for sure, but we never get close to them, because they won't let us get close to them. And that itself is usually the mark in Dostoevsky's writing of villains, of people that we're not supposed to trust. The people who we do admire, even if they do tend to, tend to be villainous, tend to have these long diatribes, long passages where they explain their, their mad philosophies, where they you know explain to us why they've given up on God, or why they have become atheists, or why they've murdered a, a peasant woman, or why they've done any number of horrible things. And in their explanations, in their passionate exhortations, in their you know true convicted belief in what it is that they've done, we see humanity. But these poles are too guarded for that. They are just walking egos, waiting to be offended and getting defensive every time that they do. So we rejoice when Mitya kicks them out of the room and locks them up, and that, again, kind of sucks. But at the same time, I think Dostoevsky is aware of this, aware of the fact that based on this scene alone, we might jump to the wrong conclusion here, and that it is really easy to see this as a sort of opportunity for prejudice or stereotyping. Later, after the Poles have been locked in the other room, like they've locked themselves in the other room, um, Grushenka gets ready to dance. Like, she's caught up with the music, and she's more than a little drunk, so she decides she's going to dance for Mitya and for everyone. Um, and they go to the Poles, and they ask them to join them. Um, so we see, this is on page 441 in the Delirium chapter, Mitya swept drunkenly to the locked door and became, began knocking for the pans with his fist. Hey you, Podvistotsky, oh my gosh, the pronunciation here, uh, Podvistotsky's, come out, she's going to dance, she's calling you. Wydyak, one of the pans shouted in reply. And you are a Podwydyak, a pretty little Polish scoundrel, that's what you are. You should stop deriding Poland, Kalganov, who had also drunk more than his fill, remarked sententiously. Quiet, boy, if I call him a scoundrel, it doesn't mean I'm calling all of Poland a scoundrel. One wide jack doesn't make a Poland. Keep quiet, pretty boy. Eat your candy. Notice, we get this insult, wide jack, meaning scoundrel. Um, earlier on, it is the Poles who call Mitya wide jack, and then ultimately Mitya is the one who sort of turn, er, turns it around here. Um, the pans respond to Mitya that he is still a scoundrel for, you know, stealing Grushenka. Again, very reasonable, the Poles sort of upset and, and in offense or offendedness here. But notice, again, when Mitya responds, you are a, a wideyak, you are a scoundrel, and Kalganov calls him out on this, like, not all Poles are, are you know, scoundrels, you should stop insulting Poland, Mitya clarifies, no, it's just these guys, these are the assholes, not all Poles. And on the one hand, I appreciate that, like, I recognize Dostoevsky is, you know, sort of clarifying here. He's not saying that all Poles are scoundrels, it's just this character who is sweeping Grushenka off her feet is apparently a Pole, and this one happens to be kind of a scoundrel, so Mitya is totally legitimate and rejecting them and deriding them and, you know, putting them in their place. They really do suck. We've seen them suck. They cheated Mitya at cards, as well as all the other Russians present. They 
almost sold Grushenka into their hands. They were debating just over a fairly not impressive price. They're bad people. But at the same time as Dostoevsky through Mitya assures us, you know, not all Poles, like hashtag not all Poles, it kind of still reads false. Where are the other Polish characters in this novel? Why did these characters have to be Polish? Why is it so significant for Grushenka that it is this Polish officer who is getting ready to marry her? And the logical answer to this is because Grushenka is defiled, Grushenka is settling for less, which means we're right back where we started, i.e. they had to be Polish because only a Pole would be low enough for Grushenka to marry, based on these circumstances. Grushenka is humiliating herself, and that's part of the text as well, so it doesn't really work out to be a solution. It is, at best, a nice gesture. Um, so again, it's complicated. It always is. Anytime that you talk about racism, whether inadvertent or intentional in literature, you're going to end up in these sort of awkward, complicated discussions. And I want to emphasize, again, this is not a deal-breaker for me. Like, I think that this is a little rough. I definitely would criticize Dostoevsky for some of his decisions here. But nonetheless, I think that he still has a really keen sense of human behavior. And I think that given these circumstances, if we do not question Dostoevsky's choice of what these characters are, their backgrounds and so on and so forth, yes, absolutely. Rubotsky, or, uh, good grief, I'm just gonna, I'm so bad at pronouncing, pronouncing these things now, it's just absolutely out of my league. Like, yesterday I was teaching the Islam section in my love and friendship class, and I was tripping over all those names, and I was immediately transitioning to talking to a student about, like, Stalinist Russia, and I was tripping over all those names, and now here we are dealing with Dostoevsky, and then, yeah... I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. I did, in fact, look up the Polish pronunciation on Pan, Panyan, Wydyak, but, like, I, I've got my limits. I'm doing my best. Suffice it to say, the Poles are not presented generously here. Um, I think that, on the one hand, Dostoevsky is fair in his approximation of how these characters work. I think that this is, again, a compelling, um, honest scene, but the setup, the decisions that led to this point, I do question. Um, an author has complete control in these situations. They know what their what the implications of these choices should be, or at least they should be aware of them. For Dostoevsky, he was aware of them. He chose them specifically for these reasons. I can't imagine that these are not deliberate. And the picture that that gives us of how Dostoevsky thinks of the Poles is not a flattering one. It is not one that I'd criticize too much, because, again, in the 19th century, this was incredibly common. Virtually everybody in Russia would believe this. As it is, Dostoevsky calls himself a Slavophile, like he is one of the conservatives. He would have been more generous to the Slavs than most of li uh, the liberal Russians, who would only have seen them as valuable insofar as they fit their, like, big liberal program. Um... Dostoevsky sees them as a part of their of his Russia at the head of the Slavic people program, even if that does seem really like condescending. It's complicated, is what it comes down to. Um, Dostoevsky is a rich thinker, and I think he has more truth than falsity here. I think he is aware and sort of hedging the the sort of prejudicial interpretation that we have here, but not so successfully that it can remark or can pass unremarked upon. Um, at any rate, the key to the whole scene, really, at the end of the day, is the celebration. This is Mitya at his best. Mitya not conniving and plotting with Smerdyakov behind hedges, not confiding in Alyosha or beating his father, not the violence that is sort of inherent in these passionate individuals, but what pa this passion equates to when, in fact, it is unleashed in a good circumstance, when somebody wants to be a good person. Mitya here loves life in much the same way that Alyosha has sort of come to embrace the entire world. We even get that note that this is the same evening. Mitya is having his grand revelation, is restored to Grushenka, and Grushenka is restored to him. He has this 
total change in circumstances that so totally reverses his fate that he regrets having beaten Grigory. He regrets being in debt. He regrets everything because now, now he's saved. He is literally delivered from his circumstances. His bad situation with Katerina Ivanovna, the one that he was going to shoot himself over, the fact that he was 3,000 rubles in debt to her, is resolved. He's saved by Grushenka, who offers to pay the debt for him. Um, he is saved because Grushenka chooses him over his father and over the Polish officer. Life is now meaningful to Mitya. Everything that was so destructive, so ruinous about his circumstances literally a day before now has been reversed. And it's interesting that there is this parallel between Mitya and Alyosha. Alyosha, too, lost faith this morning. This was where he went to Grushenka's and, you know, we'll have your vodka, we'll have your sausages, I'll go against my monastic vows, and ultimately was transformed again, first by Grushenka and her admission of her evil, and Alyosha and Grushenka sort of forgiving each other and apologizing to each other, and then again, listening to the story of Cana of Galilee, listening to the story of how Jesus affirms peasant life, the pleasures of day-to-day -day existence, against Father Farapont and his condemnation of Father Zosima's little pleasures, his sugar and his tea and his candies given to him by the old ladies, this is okay. And it is in this moment, this moment of pleasure, that we see both of them as very closely connected. As much as we've seen a lot of connection between Alyosha and Ivan, between the conversation about the Grand Inquisitor and their sort of sparring over intellectual ideas, really, Mitya and Alyosha are way closer in temperament. Um, Alyosha, like Mitya, is just looking for an opportunity to fall in love with the world. Um, and where Mitya does, because his circumstances just sort of align in that way, where Mitya is so dependent on the other factors that he can't control, what Grushenka is doing, what Fyodor is doing, what the Polish officer is doing, Alyosha has a more monastic satisfaction, a sort of sudden realization that the, the circumstances don't matter, that everything is good, and that this is a good world that they live in. This is Alyosha's revelation, and this is essentially Mitya's as well. Both of them are saved on this same night. The difference, of course, is that Alyosha's is private. He will go to bed and be a the same person, roughly, that he was tonight when he wakes up in the morning. Mitya, however, as Father Zosima predicted, has a lot of suffering to go through first. Which, of course, brings us to the very end here. Right at the end, in the middle of this delirium, as, you know, Mitya is transported, transported by his happiness, his new lease on life, as he regrets having beaten Grigory, as he regrets all of the sort of misdeeds that he's done, and is now possibly looking forward to a wonderful life with Grushenka, he is interrupted by all of these people who break up the party and turn out to be police inspectors. It's the cops! They're here to arrest him. And not just for the, you know, assault on Grigory, not because he's disturbing the peace, but because, as we saw earlier at the end of the last section, um, Pyotr having recognized that Mitya was covered in blood and could potentially have murdered his father, Pyotr Illich sends for the police, wakes up all of the household um, where Grushenka lives, and has them go fetch the cops, and now they've tracked Mitya to Makroya and interrupt the party. But their accusation comes as alarming. Fyodor Karamazov is in fact dead, and it is apparently Mitya that they are accusing. Now, again, last time when I talked about this, the confrontation between Mitya and Fyodor, or lack of confrontation, as the case may be, I mentioned that I found it kind of frustrating, that like it, it seems like a bit of a cheap trick to sort of hide the plot information here and keep tipping the hat to like, hey, this is going to be important later. Like, yes, all of this will definitely sort of become relevant in the police investigation, which we're going to talk about next time. But I gotta say, at this point, it works. At this moment when, you know, all of a sudden you're, it is announced that Fyodor is dead and you kind of suspected this was the case, but you kind of didn't, and you're pretty sure if in fact Fyodor is dead, it would have been Dimitri that had to do it. We've been sort of, like, hinting at this for so long, and we know that Dimitri is so passionate, 
And yet, at the same time, Dostoevsky has been stringing us along. We haven't seen any guilt on Dmitri's part for killing his father, unlike Grigory, unlike sort of his relationship with the, with the Poles. We see that Mitya is honest, that if he had, in fact, committed this horrible deed, presumably he would be guilty about it. But then again, do we know for sure? It is tense. It is uncertain. It is suspenseful here. Um, and as much as that's a dirty word in literary circles, I think it does, in fact, work. Like, the first time that I read this book, I wasn't sure what had happened with Fyodor. You know, you read that chapter where he's on his spree in the, the wake of him potentially murdering his father, and it's a really strange experience, sort of trying to parse, like, did he in fact kill his father, or did he not kill his father? Because if he did kill his father, this is entirely inappropriate. The fact that he's playing cards and, you know, complimenting and then, like, kicking the poles out, and he's fraternizing with Grushenka, and she's dancing, and all of this is happening, when literally, just moments ago, he was covered in blood, waving money around, completely out of his mind, and we don't know how this happened. He's, as we've said before, destroyed many lives to get here. Poor Snegirov, who was pulled out by his whisk-broom beard and thus shamed in front of his kids, who are now suffering in their own right, that was all just a pothole, a bump in the road for poor Mitya. Mitya, in his fervor, in all of his excitement, in all of his passionate good-naturedness, has destroyed a lot of lives to get here. Grigory for sure, Fyodor possibly. And as much as we're excited for him, we're happy that he ultimately kicks out the poles and successfully gets back together with Grushenka and everything is looking up for Mitya, it's hard not to be aware of the fact, to know in the back of our minds that he kind of still sucks. He's still a terrible person. He's still trampling over people to get here. Like, he even has that conversation with the coachman about how, you know, you've got to turn aside for people. You've got to, you know, get out of their way. Make sure that you don't run them over. And the coachman's like, well, yeah, you're supposed to do that. Absolutely. That, that's fundamental to being a good person and being a good coachman. Well, remember, like, this is the plan. Mitchie is going to go there and he's going to let Grushenka have her life. And then he, he does, in fact, ruin it. In part because Grushenka wants it ruined. She's definitely conspiring with him at this point. It's only once Grushenka sort of nods to him that Mitya, in fact, takes the poles back and makes this proposition to them. Like, he would never have made that move if it wasn't for the fact that it seemed to him that Grushenka was unhappy. And Grushenka is not, like, pulling punches here. She's hinting all night long that Mitya needs to do something. Um, and it's only late in this process that Mitya realizes it, because, again, Mitya is so caught up in what's going on and so oblivious to everything that's happening, including the fact that he's getting cheated out of his, out of his money. Um, it's an ugly business. But at the end of the day, Mitya does, in fact, run the Poles over as well. The Poles are victims of Mitya's spree just as much as Snegirov was and, Ge and Grigory Vasilievich was and potentially Fyodor was as well. So that's truly impressive on Dostoevsky's part, that we can both forget this and not forget this, that we can get caught up in Mitya's success only to have it come crashing down and for us to realize do we really like this character? Do we really trust him? As honest and sincere as he is, can we really even call it honesty and sincerity when he's destroyed so many people to get here? When he's changing his mind so rapidly that ultimately it's not honesty anymore. Like, he was 100% sincere when he told the coachman that he wasn't going to interfere, and he was 100% sincere when he was trying to be nice to the Poles and trying to, you know, befriend them so he could spend time with Grushenka. And then he was 100% sincere when he totally screwed them over and got Grushenka to hang out with him instead. All of this was 100% sincere. It just moved so rapidly that his character doesn't reflect well. That's the deconstruction that Dostoevsky is offering to us here. Yes, romantic heroes are admirable. They are something that we can get excited about. They're not something to just be sort of thrown away. But we also have to acknowledge that, yes, in their heroism, they do a lot of damage. In their sincerity, in their good-naturedness, in their emotionality, they hurt people very clearly, destroy lives, and without even knowing it. Like, Mitya doesn't have any regard for Snegirov. He doesn't care about the poles that he locks up. 
he does care about Grigory, at least. He has some remorse there, but that's it. So when we get this trial, we should note that this is bigger than this. This is bigger than just one potential parricide. We are kind of putting all of Romanticism on trial here. And I'm not sure if that's entirely Dostoevsky's angle here. We, we can definitely read it in that way, and I'd like to see if that yields fruitful results. But at the very least, we are seeing that your consequences aren't going to catch up with you. That Mitya can't just act this way with impunity forever. There will be a comeuppance. And it's good that there is a comeuppance. There, it is good that this happens to him. You know, Ivan would be the first person to point this out, way back in the Rebellion chapter, where he's emphasizing anyone who hurts one of these children should be punished, should be damned, and without the possibility of parole. Well, Mitya has done that. Remember poor Ilyushka, Snegirov's son, like, he's truly ailing, suffering in school, suffering from fever. That's Mitya's fault. By Ivan's logic, Mitya should be damned. And by that logic, we should look forward to him being damned. But obviously, it's not that simple. So for next time, we are going to read the entire book. But as much as it is a little long, I think we can tackle it in one go. It might make for a long lecture, but even so, I feel like the last couple of lectures especially were a little spotty insofar as we were only dealing with little passages and, and difficult ones to talk about at that. So next time, book nine, The Preliminary Investigation. I look forward to talking about it with you next week. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.